And welcome back to Superhero Cinema, the weekly show about superheroes on TV, in the movies, and in comic books. I'm Michael. I'm Jefferson. And I'm Jonathan. And this is issue number nine for the second week of May, 2007. Let's get right into an email. Uh, Jared from Pensacola, who's written us before, uh, this time writes us to ask who each of our five favorite superheroes are. And I know how easily we could do an entire show on this, but uh, let's go ahead and start off with that. We could probably do an entire month on this. It's uh, such a ripe discussion topic. Who wants to start? Uh, let's start with Jonathan. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm. I guess I'm the Marvel lover here, so I'll go ahead and start with uh, with my favorites here. I must admit, I'm glad that Spider-Man has come out here in movies because he was definitely my number one. I grew up reading Spider, the Amazing Spider-Man, and uh, just love his character. You know, love the dynamic of Peter Parker with all his problems and issues. It really rung true in adolescence for me. You know, and so. Um, just, you know, as Spider, as Peter Parker and Spider-Man were growing up in the, the late 80s and 90s there, I was right along with them. And even though I bailed out on that whole clone saga thing that happened in the, uh, the late 90s, I, I felt betrayed as a Spider-Man reader. So, but even then, it's still a special place for my heart. So I'll, I, you know, enjoy Spider-Man, enjoy the character, enjoy the movies. But we'll get into more of, of our reviews here of uh, Spider-Man 3, which came out this past weekend. So that was my number one. Um, actually, I've, I've only picked three, so I guess I'm, I'm not huge into superheroes here. Um, I, a lot of the comics I read are, are some are superheroes, some not, more, even more non-superheroes. So um, my number two is actually Adam Warlock. He's the guy from, um, he was around the Marvel Universe in the mid to late 70s. He's a guy who uh, was, was artificially created, and he was kind of given the powers, uh, given cosmic-type powers, but he was always trying to kind of find out who he was in the, the galaxy, and so he would wander around and try to figure out who he was and try to save people. And he was kind of always involved in that cosmic plane of the Marvel Universe with, like, Captain Marvel and Silver Surfer and all of them. And I remember the character, very distinctive looking, but uh, never really read any books with him in it or really got to know anything about the character. Yeah, he he kind of disappeared for a while, but then he came back big time in the Infinity Gauntlet, one of my favorite Marvel uh, stories there. And uh, so he, he was kind of the, uh, the wild card um, that in the Infinity Gauntlet storyline. And uh, so he, he just was kind of an enigmatic, cool character who who got paired up with some other characters after Infinity Gauntlet, and I kind of bailed out on that. I guess I'm not very loyal to my favorite superheroes, am I? <laughs> but uh, but Adam Warlock was my number two. Um, and then number three was Silver Surfer. He, you know, I just love the, the conflict in my characters. And so... For Silver Surfer, I mean, you know, he, he started out, normal guy, he wants to find out more about what's outside his home planet of Zinla, and uh, so he sacrifices himself to Galactus to save his planet, And but, you know, he's doomed to roam the spaceways and be apart from his love, and so I appreciate that kind of isolation. I mean, not that I'm isolated, but just that he really seems to not be at home with himself. You know, he's still, still still in conflict. Even though he's all, you know, really got the cosmic power, he's still kind of doomed with this curse of, you know, being the Herald of Galactus. And then when he uh, he broke free from that, he it took him a while to kind of find his purpose in life. And, um, you know, kind of being the, the foil for, for Thanos, my favorite bad guy. If we ever do, like, a future email of favorite supervillains... Jared starts typing now. Me. Yes. Right. Come on, Jared. Hopefully. I'm setting you up. Yeah. Um, Boy, and you're uh, you're batting two out of three for movies this summer. Basically. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm have we have good. we got a good summer for you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm hoping they don't do a Fantastic Four three and try to work Adam Warlock in there. I don't think it'll work. But uh, but those are are my three superheroes, all from the Marvel universe. I like Spider Man. I mean, obviously, we all grew up with Spider Man. I I don't know that. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily. I wouldn't put him on my top five. I I would say in terms of him in the comics, the initial original black costume period, I is one of my kind of favorite Spider-Man times. Definitely, yeah, and I I really like that era in the McFarlane eras when I was really you know getting into Spider-Man heavy there. Yeah, and I was already not reading him by that time. Yeah, I only superficially read Spider-Man. I. Uh... The most I ever followed it was the fairly recent run that J. Michael Straczynski did on the book. I read that pretty avidly, but I can always take or leave him as a character. I like him when there's a, a interesting writer or artist working on him. But 
Yeah, and that was a really good storyline. I mean, when he revealed himself to Aunt May for the first time, it was mm-hmm. like, man, finally a writer is tackling this. Well, I'm going to go next just uh, because I am afraid that Jefferson will take all of mine. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Uh, first up, I'll start with the biggest right off the bat, um, Batman, because um, I think you gotta you gotta have Batman. You gotta love the bat. You gotta go with the Batman. I mean, he is just cool. <laughs> this is really the best way to describe it. I mean, you know, you I don't need to say anything about his story. Everyone knows his story, but it's the aspects of his story that, I mean, obviously, the the not having any powers and having come to him to who he is by decision and training and and working hard at it. Um, that and a couple million dollars in the bank, but <laughs> but I mean the, the determination and 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 the will would all be there, with, you know, with or without the money. There's lots of different eras of Batman that that I'm a fan of. I mean, definitely the uh, Rogers and Englehart back in the '70s, uh, Denny O'Neill in the you know, '70s and '80s, uh, editing mostly in the '80s. Uh, I'm a big fan of him having been in the Justice League for so long, just because I think you know he he's he's the most well-known character without powers and you put him in a room with the most powerful beings in the world, in the DC universe, and he's still the coolest person in the room. That's, that's someone you got to respect. You know, he's still someone who the other people in the room defer to, which is unusual too. I mean, he's, he's probably one of the smartest, but you defer to the loner too, you know? And I think they, they defer to him and they're almost even afraid of him a little bit, I think. I think he spooks him. Maybe because he's so formidable, even though he doesn't have any powers of his own. He doesn't seem to need them. Uh, next up is uh, one of the characters that we talked about in, a couple weeks ago when we were asked who we'd like to see done his movies, and that's Firestorm. Uh, similar reasons to what I talked about then. I just thought he's a really cool character. Um, he's graphically arresting. Um, <laughs> he... he uh, just has a cool aspects to his power. I mean, that he, he manipulates molecules. He's got a great costume. He has flame for a head, for hair. Um, it's it's very cool. He's two beans fused into one. I know there's been multiple versions of Firestorm. I'm talking about the original Ronnie Raymond, Professor Martin Stein, 1977 original Firestorm, the one who originally joined the Justice League, the one who was on Super Friends is, is the Firestorm that, that I'm a fan of. Um, Green Arrow, uh, similar reasons to Batman, uh, cool guy, uh, loner, like the fact that he's a little bit older, um, definitely the, the 1970s, uh, Danny O'Neill, Green Arrow, the, the, the social activist, the liberal, the, uh, the guy who just doesn't care what the other superheroes think and is going to go his own way and do his own thing. Um, again, self-training and, and no superpowers. Um, then last, I've got a couple of old Charlton characters who are now DC characters. Um, also one that had been on my list for movies, uh, was the question. Um, again, very cool visually. Um, again, probably not the Charlton version. Uh, it would be the Denny O'Neill ver- version from the late eighties, early nineties. And it was the whole philosophical Zen warrior kind of aspect to him, martial arts, detective that i just thought was very cool and again a lot of the same stuff that i like about batman um would be why i would like the question and then last is captain adam um and this uh the multiple versions of him and in this case not the dc version I'm, I'm not really a big fan of the dc version at all i liked the original charlton version i thought he was just a straight up fun cool great looking character i just thought you know a guy who turned into a nuclear man and and uh can't be around anyone because he's he's so radioactive uh, but they make him a special suit so he can be around people and i think they've they've taken that character and done interesting versions of him other people have taken that idea and and run with it uh in other books that have taken off on the charlton characters they've been kind of a favorite to be to be uh, remade or recreated because people know the characters but they don't necessarily know them that well and i just thought the 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 original captain adam from the charlton books that had a blue red and silver kind of suit he just looked cool so those are mine something that a lot of people may may or may not be aware of is that uh captain adam and uh the question are the basis for uh dr manhattan and rorschach from the watchman yeah all the watchman characters are based pretty much on charlton characters coming Hmm. soon or maybe not so soon to a theater near you we hope all right well my five i i really agonized about these choices for a couple reasons one uh, kind of like what Jonathan said and what I said a couple weeks ago when we were asked who we'd like to see in movies. Most of my favorite comic book characters are not superheroes. 
Um, so I tried to restrict myself to traditional superhero type characters because that's what the question was. And the other reason I had a hard time with it was because as a comics fan, I've always been more of a fan of, of ri- particular writers and artists rather than characters. So I'll pick a writer or an artist that I like and I'll just follow them around and read whatever comic they're working on. So it's never been about the characters as much for me as about the, the writers and artists. So I've, ch- I've still chosen five characters, and but I've chosen particular creative teams runs on them. Uh, the first one on my list is Green Arrow also. So I did, I actually stole two of yours, Michael. <laughs> That's why I went first. <laughs> but, but now you've stolen mine. But anyway, Green Arrow, particularly Mike Grell's run on Green Arrow from started in 1986 and ran through uh, 90 or 91, I think. He did about, Mike Grell wrote about 60 or 70 issues of it, I think, before he left. But he restarted the book in the 80s and he really sort of brought the character back into prominence. And he had a sort of really nice realistic take on the character. He got him away from kind of the silly trick arrows and gave him a more realistic costume and kind of brought up, it was sort of a running joke throughout the series that everybody knew he was Oliver Queen. He thought he had a secret identity, but everybody knew who he was and he would mention it every once in a while and they would people would always tell him, who do you think you're fooling with that tiny little mask? Right. What, what other famous <laughs> rich guys with a blonde goatee and a tiny little mask are running around, you know? Exactly. And he ran a flower <laughs> shop. I thought, what a great what a great thing for a macho superhero to do, run a, run a flower shop. Um, second would be um, Starman, the version done by uh, James Robinson and Tony Harris, which uh, came out in the latter part of the 90s. They're idea was that the original Starman, who was a, a Justice Society of America character back in the 40s and 50s, had retired and had had his son take over as Starman, but his his older son took over and blew it and died, and so he had to then pass on the mantle of Starman to the younger son, who was kind of a, a goofy screw-up. And so um, it was, a, again, it was sort of a, a different kind of realistic take on a superhero character. Um, hmm. He didn't wear a skin-tight costume. You know, when he figured out, okay, I'm going to be Starman, I'm going to have to fly around in the sky. So he wore goggles and a leather coat to stay warm. And it was just more realistic. He had a, a neat look to him. Um, he didn't really worry so much about the secret identity either. But they did a lot of interesting stories. Um, yeah, I remember that, that book. That was, a, that was yeah. a pretty cool book. Was and a great what were book Starman's and- powers? Um, he had this sort of base of his magic wand. It was the cosmic rod or the star rod or something. It allowed him to yeah, the cosmic fly. Rod. He could fly and shoot beams of energy and pretty basic stuff. But the thing that I really liked about the book was that James Robinson, the writer, was really aware of the history and of the number of different DC characters who had been named Starman. And he managed to work all of them into the ongoing storyline at one time or another. He did stories about every every DC character who had been named Starman and had them all intersect with, with the main character at, at one level or another. And I thought that was really neat. That and Harris's great. art was really nice on the book, too. Uh, third on my list is uh, this, the original Sandman, not the Neil Gaiman version, but the original one from the 40s. Uh, particularly, again, in the 90s, uh, Matt Wagner and uh, Guy Davis did a great series for Vertigo called The Sandman Mystery Theater which was all about the Sandman, who was a sort of shadow-like character. He didn't really wear a costume, but he wore an overcoat and a gas mask because his uh, he didn't have any superpowers of his own, but he had a, a gun that shot sleeping gas, and that was how he attacked criminals. As he Don't forget the fedora. Them. He had a trench yeah, coat, the, the gas fedora. mask, and a fedora. Yeah, it was a great look. Got to have really the fedora. Nice yeah. and so, But the, the series that, that Matt Wagner and Guy Davis did was really – interesting because it really became more about Wesley Dodds who was the the character who was the Sandman and he was kind of this pudgy out of weight out of shape guy he wasn't Bruce Wayne you know he he had he was wealthy so he could afford gadgets and stuff but but he wasn't the traditional superhero even the traditional empowered superhero he had, he wore glasses so you know he had all kinds of weird little problems and he was trying to carry on this romance at the same time. He's sort of a cross between, I guess, Peter Parker. What if Peter Parker were Batman, maybe, would be how to describe hmm. that show. Because <laughs> the story with the series was as much about his personal life as it was about uh, him being a superhero. And um, let's see. The the tie, numbers one and two, would be Batman and Superman, for, I think, my two favorites. You know, you got to go with the two classics. Another one I'll steal from Michael, Batman uh, just, I mean, what a great character, you know, as Michael already put pretty well. Particularly, my favorite version of Batman would be the 1990s animated series Batman by uh, Bruce Timm and, and crew. I think, to me, that's always going to be my, my favorite version of the character. They did such a great job with, with the main character and with all the 
the secondary characters in the series. Yeah, I still say Mask of the Phantasm, the, the actual feature film they released from that series, is is the best Batman feature film we will ever get. Mm-hmm. With the yeah, I thought to this point, I think I'd probably agree with that statement. Um, I thought it had fantastic music too. I mean, you just definitely mm-hmm. get that dark, brooding aspect to his character. Yeah, and then yeah, and just the the way they did everything, the the whole design of it and everything was just it was just a great sort of capsule version of Batman where you didn't they they drew on all those years and years and years of comic book history but you didn't need to know that because they represented it for you and they were able to sort of edit and clean it up and stuff like that and they gave the world Harley Quinn who's one of the great great villain henchman characters who first appeared (laughs) on that show and Superman I think is the top of my list Uh, when I was a young cynical teenager I probably would have put Batman first because he was meaner but Superman the idea of somebody with that much power who still always does the right thing, I find really hopeful and nice. I, I find that that makes me feel better about things sometimes when you think about a, a character like that who's that powerful but that fundamentally good. And particularly John Byrne's run on Superman in the 80s. It always comes down to the 80s for me, I guess. 80s, sure. DC. Yeah, it's whatever age you were when you were doing your, mm-hmm. your, your kind of and- teen year reading. Well, and on top of that, though, I mean, DC was really in a renaissance in the in the late from about 1986 through 1990. They had all the best talent, all the the talented guys that were working in comics were all working for DC. All these guys who used to work for Marvel had all jumped ship and gone over to DC to work on all these characters. And John Byrne had a great take on Superman. He uh, he sort of he got to do a, redo the origin, and he stuck pretty much to the classic story with a few little changes. And he just did his art style really suited the character. He did a great job on it. And so uh, Superman's top of my list. Yeah, I mean it's he he is the the number one superhero. But yeah, I, I know like during that time during the seventies eighties when I was collecting comics, I did do an, a huge run of Superman at the time. I think like three hundred issues in a row that I had collected back issues and stuff. And so definitely a huge Superman fan. Just uh. Yeah, just didn't make my top five. Yeah, he was he was the Boy Scout. Yeah, he was the Boy Scout, and he's uh and he is really he's really dependent on on what creative team is working on him because it's I think it's really easy to mess him up too, or to make him boring, or to make him stale, and so you really need somebody with with some some flair and style to the way they do comics or to the way they do movies if you're talking about a Superman movie. Yeah, that is something that I kind of feel strongly about. Whenever you read a, a writer or something saying that they have to do something with Superman or, or change him or do something with the powers because it, he's, he can't be interesting otherwise, that's to me a lack of imagination. That's, exactly. You know, that's sloppy. If you, if you write the right character right, you can do interesting things with Superman. Exactly, which John Byrne did. He did really interesting things with Superman without breaking the, the formula. He stuck to what Superman is. He didn't do anything bizarre like change his costume or change his powers. There were a lot of silly tricks they came up with in the late 90s to try to get more people to read the book. And Byrne didn't do any of that. He took the character as written, and he wrote interesting stories about him. And I think it's still possible to do that if you have the imagination to do it. Well, ask us again in a year, and we'll probably have completely different answers. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see. Maybe not. Just a couple of corrections from last week or some kind of additional information from last week. Um, I did mention the Superman Doomsday trailer, and uh, then you guys <laughs> told me that the trailer was no longer available. I did double-check that, and yeah, Warner Brothers had it yanked from everywhere that it was posted online. I don't know why. I, I mean, I saw the trailer. It seems like I'm one of the few who got to, and I can't imagine there's nothing in there that they didn't want out. I mean, I don't know. Don't know why they pulled it. I imagine that we'll see it pop back up in a couple of weeks, and hopefully everyone else will get to see it at that point. I'm hoping that it will. It sounds like a good story. I mean, I want to be able to to get a good feel for it, you know? Mm. See if it's DVD-worthy. Uh, I did say that I was going to look up the artist who did the Iron Man, the first poster for the movie that they put out last year, and whose kind of comic book work they were using as the basic design for the suit in the movie, and that was Adi Granov, was the artist. Yeah, I remember I read that run of the comic that he illustrated. Beautiful work. And I looked at the photo again of the suit that's on the official Iron Man side, and it is exactly his design from his run on the comics. And they did put out a higher-res version of that uh, photo this week, so it gave gave him more detail that you kind of see the armor and kind of see what the details on the armor are even better. Also, we do have some really good, uh, interesting stories this week, so let's go ahead and get on to the news. (laughs) 
Let's Talk News. You can always get additional info and links to these stories on our website, SuperheroCinema.com. The front page of the site will always keep you updated on the latest info about superhero movies and TV shows from all over the web. So first up, big story. Speaking of webs. Speaking of webs, Spider-Man box office broke all the records out there. $151 million for the three-day weekend, a new record. That's just in the U.S. Uh, worldwide, when you include the two days that it was open in foreign countries prior to it opening in the U.S., the total box office from uh, from the 1st of May, where it opened up uh, world outside of the U.S. to the end of Sunday, it did $382 million worldwide. Total brand-new record. It's it's kind of huge the 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 budget of the film you know rumor wise because studios never tell you you know will never confirm what what an actual movie cost um, but the the estimated budget was two hundred fifty eight million uh, the highest CGI budget of a film to date um, two hundred fifty eight million to make it plus another hundred million in advertising and prints and it basically means Sony has already made their money back that's it just blows my mind how much they spent on advertising and promotion for this movie i mean everybody knows it everybody knows it's coming do you do they have to spend that much money to push it well you do to guarantee that result i mean that's Mm -hmm. you spend that money to make that money i mean it's it's basically 358 million to make 382 million and i think it is important that they do that because i mean People like us and probably the majority of our listeners keep up on on movie release dates, but the general public doesn't. The general public needs to be told when movies are coming out, and that's what all that advertising is for. Is so that they'll know that oh hey we should go see Spider Man three this weekend. Yeah, it was the largest release of any film ever. It was played on the most screens. Uh, it opened on four thousand two hundred fifty two screens in the U S. Um, a new high, and it uh, was on eighty nine hundred screens outside the U S. Um, even though it was on more screens than than any film had been in the U.S., it's it broke a record for the highest average per screen. That's also a figure that they look at quite closely: is is how much the film is making per every screen that it's on, and it it uh, did an average of thirty five thousand per screen, which was a new record. Wow! Um, yeah, <laughs> a, lot a lot of people, people went to see the film. Well, I think a lot of people were remembering how good the first two were, and were were hoping for that same experience. Broke records in every country that it opened in, uh, all 107 markets that it opened in, it, it broke records. Um, it uh, surpassed the previous record holder, which had been Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, uh, which had opened with $135 million. Uh, This did over $15 million more than that for the weekend. Uh, the previous highest release internationally opening had been The Da Vinci Code with $155 million. This, like... Did way bigger than that. It was is over two hundred million foreign for the week. Not bad for a film based on a comic book. Sounds like every man, woman, child went to go see it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, not only are those results good for Sony, uh, Marvel just posted their quarterly profits on Monday, the day after Spider-Man, uh, Spider-Man's weekend, and it actually... There's no accident timing there. Right, yeah. it definitely timed to, to coincide with that. Now, Marvel did not produce the film, Sony produced the film, they get the majority of the money, uh, this is why Marvel's starting to produce movies themselves. Marvel just gets a fee, just a licensing fee, but that licensing fee is tied to the profits, so it's so it's essentially the higher the film makes, the, the more licensing fee. That, that Marvel gets for that. Um, they also, in their quarterly profits, were, were the licensing fee for Spider-Man and also the licensing fee for the toys based on Spider-Man. So essentially, because of the opening of Spider-Man, the licensing fee that Marvel received for that, their revenue went up 68% from last year. Wow. Go Marvel. Holy cow. So, so was it worth it? Yes. <laughs> You'd have to ask Marvel that. <laughs> yeah, so so what did you guys think of the movie i, I don't want to go first when i, when I don't mind s- going first i mean i, I, I want to hear some other opinions before before from, i go from the the man who uh grew up with spider-man and and grew up in that whole venom era um i thought it had a lot of great moments um i appreciated the, the effects i thought that sandman was done really well we're gonna have spoilers here if that's all right actually talk about plot and it, i don't know that this with that box office i don't know that there could be anyone left who hasn't seen the film <laughs> <laughs> true um and i just thought that uh, it did seem a little crowded but it kind of harkened back to that whole you know kind of teaming up aspect of, of comics that i saw a lot because you know at, at the end it was uh, basically spider-man and the new goblin versus sandman and venom 
So it was just this huge superhero, supervillain free-for-all, which I thought was really cool. And uh, but they did have some some slow kind of kind of funky parts, like when um, the dancing. they were trying to this yeah they were establishing the the evil aggressive dancing part. Peter Parker doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, when he was like doing the whole dancing and the whole emo look, it was like okay, I I, I get your point. The audience is laughing, which is good, but you're kind of you're losing it as a progressive story for me, but um, it wasn't particularly evil. Him just like winking and shooting his fingers at girls. <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> I love that. That was great. Although it did make a really, I, I will say that did make a really good bookend to the raindrops keep falling on my head sequence from from Spider Man Two. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and uh, but I th- I thought that the person who really got the short shift in this movie was J Jonah Jameson. I thought that he he just got nothing in this movie. He wow. just seemed more of a character. A J. Jonah Jameson fan. All right, maybe yeah, the only I mean... J. Jonah Jameson fan. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely tell you that uh, yeah, Peter Parker and, and Eddie Brock aren't J. Jonah Jameson fans, but mm. he, he just, you know, he didn't get anything. He got some semi-funny moments, but they just seemed so so worked over and trite. It just seemed like they were trying to, way too hard to, to include him in the movie and make him funny. So... Um, you know, I I want to give it a good rating, and uh, so I think that you know overall I'll give it a good rating. Yeah, and at, at the end after we all talk about it, uh, we'll we'll give our rating. I actually thought we'd come up with a new superhero cinema rating system that we'll inaugurate with this film. Um, I felt a lot of the same things about this that I felt about Ghost Rider. Um, I thought it was great to look at. Um, my biggest problem was that a lot of the stuff, the the character motivations just weren't there for a lot of the stuff. I, I I'll say that I felt a lot of the same way about Ghost Rider, but on such an unbelievably different level in terms of how much I enjoyed the things about the film that I liked. So obviously, way way better than Ghost Rider. So you had bigger highs and right, lower lows exactly. or something like that. Bigger highs and smaller lows, I'd say. Yeah. Um, my biggest complaint, and just to kind of narrow it down and just pick one, is the fact that there's absolutely no motivation and no backstory and no information given on the symbiote. We don't know why that, where it came from, why it landed there, the fact that it's just so coincidental that it landed right next to Peter Parker and happened to stick to his, his bike and follow him home and then be perfectly happy to wait around for several weeks until he's angry enough for it to want to take him over at that point. Uh, just was way too coincidental, and then just a pure disappointment at at not hearing Venom really speak and ever having it referred to itself as Venom. I, I think that that would have been cool, but but I mean there was there was lots to love about the film. I mean I you know I thought everyone in it was pretty good. I I you know like I said the, the the things to find bad about this are the things that I find bad about a lot of films, but the things to find good so much overweigh on such a bigger level than things. I mean, the Sandman sequences were great. I mean, particularly the Sandman initial sequence, when you first see that, that body of sand, try to learn how to move and learn how to be human again, that the CGI and that was, was far and away the most incredible CGI work I've seen. And obviously they spent, you know, the most money that anyone spent on CGI on that. And I think it paid off in that sequence. Yeah, because it's not just the effects, it's also the emotion of the moment. You don't want to lose that. And you still felt it there, I thought. Yeah, and that was totally there. Yeah, my, my review of this is similar to Michael's. It it had it definitely had its moments. This like you said, the scene with the Sandman where he's first trying to reform his body was great. I mean that scene while I was watching it, I didn't even really feel like I was watching CG. You know, I felt like I was watching a scene with a character. You know, I was able to forget that it was CG while I was watching it, which is pretty. You know, that that's that's the that's ideal what you goal. Want. Yeah, that's the goal for all CG, and very rarely does it meet that goal. Um, overall, though, yeah, I thought the the movie's plot relied way too much on coincidence. I thought it had way too many elements that were tried that they tried to cram into it, so that pretty much everything got got short shifted. No character really got served very well because there was too much going on. And they spent too much time on silly stuff like Peter Parker doing his little dance down the road and winking and pointing at girls and doing all that goofy stuff. You know, there was too much of that at the expense of stuff that they should have spent more time on. Um, I thought J. Jonah Jameson did have some, some great moments in the film. He didn't get many of them, you're right, but he got... 
you know, he got his standard moment in the office where he yells at everybody, which he always gets. And that's all he ever really did in the comics anyway. That's and true. the scene with where he buys the camera from the little girl was a great little scene. I thought that was that was a lot of fun. The character I thought funny. who really got the short shift in this one was uh, Gwen Stacy. I thought uh, Bryce Dallas Howard did did what could have been a great job had she actually had any material to work with. But she was, I thought she, she was a, a great character, but she was really just window dressing in this Right, film. again, there's no motivation, there's no explanation of, of why the character is doing anything they're doing from one scene to the next. Yeah, there's no, no real reason for her to be there. The only scene that she has that makes any sense at all is the scene where Peter takes her to the club to try to make Mary Jane jealous. And that, the point, the purpose for that scene was, was kind of nonsensical and, and I thought a waste of time. Sure. Well, the one thing I thought particularly on that scene is, is the... She, in that scene, she is wearing the black hair band that was yeah, the, the classic, was the classic Gwen Stacy iconic visual that that at that moment she nailed the characters. You know, they they perfectly made her look like Gwen Stacy from the comics at that moment. Yeah, now, I yeah. thought uh, throughout the film, I thought she nailed the character pretty well. I thought she did a good job. I would like to have seen a smaller story. I think, you know, maybe just a story with. With Gwen and her father, you know, maybe they could have done the the death of Captain Stacy story that was a classic from the the seventies Spider Man comics. But well, that's the thing they'd they'd already stolen all of Gwen Stacy's story for the other for right. the other film so far. I mean, that's basically Mary Jane. A lot of her story in the first film is is Gwen Stacy's story that they used for that, and a lot of the the uh, Harry Osborn story of of you know being friends with Peter Parker but hating Spider Man because of the death of his father is a Gwen Stacy story. That basically was the death of Captain Stacy's story. That they'd been they'd been mining it for three films with Harry Osborn instead of having it being done by Gwen Stacy. That's a good point. But and then yeah, the 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 whole Venom story relied way too much on coincidence. It didn't really just it didn't follow. You know, I thought the uh, Spider-Man Two had a just a great story with a few characters and it it came together really well. And three really felt to me like they had a laundry list of characters and and the the stories as it, such as it was was nothing more than an excuse to have all those characters in the same movie and the only character that really got a story at all was the sandman i thought he was you know he had a story with an origin and an ending and and you know he was a little bit two dimensional with the i did it all for my daughter stuff but at least he had a, a coherent story that made sense but yeah, overall, I, I I found the film to be kind of weak, especially compared to the how strong the first two were, especially the second one. Yeah, you you expect more from the third one to kind of bring it all together, bring it home, and to really leave you satisfied, you know? Right. Yeah, I was hoping for something bigger, but uh, you know, bigger and and, and exactly more satisfying. Bigger, but, but not certainly loaded. Did, certainly didn't get it. So to wrap up our feelings on that, let's let's start our new rating system where. Uh, Basically, we judge with our dollars. Um, something Jefferson had said last week is, is the best you know, way to render a judgment on these films is to vote with your dollars. So basically what I think we should do is say uh, how many movie tickets or how many DVDs. Essentially, you know, w- whether you think it's even worth paying for um, at the theater or whether it should be waited for on DVD or should be a rental or if it should be seen in the theater or should be seen multiple times. Um, I'll start off with that, and I'd say it's a it's. I'll give Spider-Man three two movie tickets, and it's two movie tickets because uh, one is that it should be seen in an IMAX. If you have not seen it, it's also did break records for most money made by an IMAX film on opening weekend, um, and once probably in a regular theater because I already saw it once in a regular theater and then had to wait till later to see it in the IMAX because that was sold out. So two movie tickets and one DVD because of course you have to buy the DVD. Well, I'm going to have to go with just one movie ticket on this one. I think there's a few really great action sequences that you want to see on a big screen. But barring those, I mean, I don't. I mean, and ideally, yeah, on an IMAX screen. Ideally, you'd get to see every movie on an IMAX screen. So if you haven't seen it yet, just go see it at IMAX. But I'm I'm not going to see it again just to just for the opportunity to watch it on an IMAX screen. See it once and be done with it. I won't be buying the DVD. I don't think I'll ever want to watch it again. So uh, I think uh, once was enough for me. So I'll just go with one movie ticket on this one. I'm actually going to raise the ante a little bit there. I would, I would go for one and a half tickets and a DVD because I saw you know on a Friday night, normal movie theater, packed house, and it was fun because you get the whole atmosphere of everybody seeing it and experiencing it for the first time. So everybody gasps and laughs at the same time and... And you just kind of get the overall picture there. And I would give it a half ticket 
and I would see it again, but in the dollar theater. I would kind of, you know, I don't have to have the huge screen or the surround sound or the, the reclining seats or whatever. I just have to, you know, just kind of go and maybe, you know, see some things I may have missed the first time. And uh, I, I'm probably going to get the DVD just to finish out my trifecta of Spider-Man and see what kind of special features they may have there. And uh, Sony obviously is very happy about it with that box office. Uh, one of the executives, Michael Linton, has already gone ahead and said that they're planning on Spider-Man 4, 5, and 6. Um, obviously, none of the you know, none of the talent signed for that yet. Uh, those may or may not be made with any of the same actors or Sam Raimi. But Sony is going to commit the funds to wanting to go ahead and do more mo- Spider-Man movies. I just think it's crazy that they want to plan at least three more. I mean, can't you just be semi-conservative and just plan at least one more and see how it goes? I mean, that seems like just supreme overkill. It's films printing money at the moment. That's that's how studios think. So moving on to other stories, um, there have been some casting on The Incredible Hulk, uh, one of Marvel's first self-produced movies. Um, Liv Tyler is going to be Betty Ross in the new Incredible Hulk. I think that's a great choice. Good. I thought... Uh, I think uh, that's great counter-casting or a good, you know, casting with Ed Norton. Yeah, I think so too. I thought uh, Jennifer Connelly was was the perfect choice to play Betty Ross, but since they can't have her back, I think Liv Tyler's a nice, nice Betty Ross choice. And yeah, I think she'll she'll play well with with Norton. A lot of people don't like Liv Tyler, but I think she's great. I've, I've I think she'll bring a lot more I've character to the role. Mm-hmm, I think so too. She won't be yeah. so concerned about delivering a serious performance, and she'll just play a fun character. I've never been a big Liv Tyler fan. I think that she's just kind of one-dimensional in all of her characters. So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, maybe she can bring something new. Hey, this, this I think this might be a superhero cinema first. For once, I said something positive and Jonathan said something negative. I don't think that's <laughs> I think ever right. happened before. I, th- I think that may be wow. the first time that, that he's been the most negative on something. Write down yeah. this day on your calendar, everybody. It's Liv a, Tyler, it's ooh, you got a long road to hoe. <laughs> well, we'll see what he feels about the next one. Um, this one was just announced uh, today on, on Wednesday of this week. Uh, Tim Roth is going to be the abomination in The Incredible Hulk. Also great. Tim Roth is one of my favorite actors. He's been in a lot of movies that I've really liked. Um, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. He's in my one of my all-time favorite movies, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And um, I think he's going to make a great, great villain. I think uh, it's about time he got involved in uh, in a comic book movie. And, uh, I, Emil Blonsky is kind of a, a character that depends entirely on the story. His only real, he doesn't really have much of a personality of his own. He's he's whatever the writer needs him to be. So, but I think with an actor like Tim Roth in the part, he'll make him into an interesting character, and I think that'll be great. That actually was what I was about to say, was that uh, that in the press release where they announced Tim Roth would be playing the character, they did refer to the character as Emil Blonsky. So they did confirm that, that that's who he would be, and, and that the backstory would essentially be that of the comics, that he's uh, the KGB spy who is uh, looking into gamma radiation and uses the same kind of process that uh, created the Hulk and turns himself into the Abomination, who's essentially a bigger, greener, meaner version of the Hulk who can't ch- cannot change back and forth. I have to admit, I'm, I'm a little little disappointed at, that they're not using a character that may have made number six on my list of, uh, of superheroes, and he would have been the only Marvel character on my list, but Doc Samson was a character from The Incredible Hulk, uh, backstory who was another character who he was banner psychiatrist and he got into the gamma thing you know everybody wanted to 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 believe that that if they messed with the gamma radiation they'd get it right and they wouldn't end up in the predicament that that poor banner was in and so doc Sampson was like this scrawny little nerd who who did the gamma treatment and it turned him into this big beefy weightlifter superhero guy and he is his only concession was that he had long green hair which was just a uh I get trying to think of another euphemism for visually interesting, but it was it was a neat neat look, you know. It was kind of funny, and for a while in the comics, they actually did they based the character on the classic mythological character of Samson, and said that his power was actually tied up in his hair, and if he cut his hair, he would lose his strength. But they got rid of that idea after a while. But well, they I'm may not. they may actually use the character. They they yeah. they haven't said they haven't. I mean, right? I think I I actually I mean I think it'd be fun if they did, but at the same time, I don't want them to make the same mistake that Spider Man three made and shoehorn too many characters and too many stories into one movie they can save him for incredible hulk 3 or incredible hulk 2 or whatever they want to call the next one so that brings me to another spider-man 3 reference for this which is something that 
it's on my list of things that bug me. The writer of The Incredible Hulk, Zach Penn, uh, who was at the Tribeca Film Festival last week, he was quoted as as confirming uh, last week that the Abomination would be in the film. That was that was the first confirmation of it prior to this casting announcement today. Um, but he, <laughs> one thing he was specific about was that he will never be called the Abomination in the film. So very similar to Venom in Spider-Man 3, where they had the character, but he never is actually called Venom. The Abomination will be the primary villain, and he will never actually be referred to as the Abomination. And Zach Penn's feeling on that was that it's just a stupid name, and you're not gonna, it just will not sound right in a film for someone someone to be called the Abomination. And uh, that just kind of bugs me, because if you've got the characters and you're doing the film, I mean, you're already calling something the Hulk, although, you know, there's no guarantee that he's actually going to be called the Hulk, because I don't think they ever called him that in the first film. But when you do a film with Spider-Man, you, you call him Spider-Man. <laughs> You know, when you're doing a film they where the villain is are. the abomination, I mean, it's it's a comic book movie. It's a, it's a superhero movie. You're either committing to that idea or you're not. You know, yeah, there are some things that are going to be too stupid, but what a character is called is not one of them. Yeah, to me, it really just depends on the story. I mean, if it if it serves the story to have him be named, then great. You know, like with uh, in Spider-Man Three with the Sandman, you know, he got named because they had. They used the news reports as a storytelling device, and then the news news people were calling him the Sandman, and that's how he got named. If it's not convenient or necessary for the story to, to name him the Abomination, I don't think it's a big deal, one way or the other, whether whether they use his name or not. It just it really just depends on on how the the movie is written, I think. So moving on, uh, we talked last week about the Batman, the animated series on Saturday morning, and the fact that they were going to be introducing more Justice League characters on the show, and they were in the middle of their two-part Martian Manhunter story. They finished it uh, last weekend, and a big surprise at the very end of the episode, uh, Martian Manhunter takes uh, the Batman up to his Justice League satellite, which, amusingly enough, uh, is shaped like the Hall of Justice from the Super Friends. It basically was a giant rock in space with, with the Hall of Justice sitting on top of it, was the Justice League satellite. And into the room walks Green Lantern, Flash, Hawkman, and Green Arrow. So we, we went ahead and got introduced to a bunch of the characters. Story-wise, I, I was a little annoyed by it because the entire two-parter had been about Batman, the Batman learning the value of teamwork and uh, and learning to work with Robin and Batgirl, who he'd taken on as partners, but was still kind of being a loner. So, so the whole story hinged on him being willing to work with them. And when he finally learns to do that, and, and that enables him to successfully thwart the alien invasion of Earth that, in the Martian Manhunter's words, was going to completely take over the Earth and, and could not be defeated. Batman finally defeats him by, by working with those partners, and so Martian Manhunter has, has felt that he's passed the test of being able to work with people, so that's when he actually takes him up and introduces him to the Justice League that he's been forming. My feeling at that point is, where were they during the alien invasion? <laughs> that's a very good question. They were busy. They were in the bathroom, maybe. Yeah, I was kind of wondering that, too. I was I watched. I just watched part two of that story uh, earlier today, and I was watching it going, okay, so all these aliens are attacking. They, they made a big deal about doing the, the, the thing where they show them in all the different cities. They always have to destroy the Sydney Opera House every time there's a a sequence like that. But then I found myself thinking, okay, where are all the other superheroes? You know, the whole I was thinking that, invaded. too. Yeah, why, why can't anybody else come and help? Why does Batman have to do it all? And naturally, it's, of course, it's because it's Batman's show. But but yeah, and then that made that complaint even more valid when when they get to the end and they were just hanging out on the satellite the whole time. Maybe they were just not done with their weekly poker game yet or something. Who knows? Maybe they really were the bad guys. Yes. Yeah, maybe it was all an elaborate test to uh, to see how Batman would work under pressure. That manipulative Martian Manhunter. I know that <laughs> sneaky guy. Yeah, it was funny seeing the Hall of Justice too because they. Uh, that DC cracked just, me up. Yeah, I thought it was great. And uh, DC just recently relaunched the uh, Justice League of America comic book series, and they are back to the Hall of Justice. They're back to a, a Earth-based headquarters. They, they're not on the satellite anymore in the comic, and so they're in a in a building that's based on Earth. I can't. I think it's in New York. Maybe I can't remember what city it's supposed to be in, but it's it's drawn exactly like the old Hall of Justice from the Super Friends. Another nod to. Yeah, they do keep using it. it. It is one of those images that is just so resonant. You, you you see it and it immediately evokes feelings if you if you're the anywhere over the age of twenty. 
Sure. And I think part of the reason that you're seeing that so much is because the people working on these shows and these comics are people who grew up on the Super Friends. And so that to them, that's a superhero headquarters. That's what it's supposed to look like. So it it's, does two things. It's, it's what they remember it being. And yeah, it's a great little nod to all of us fans who grew up on that show. I think it's a lot of fun. It's fun because it's a subtle thing that it's a reference that they can throw in that's not going to confuse anybody who doesn't get it. But if you do get it, it's it's a little thing that can make you smile while you're watching. But if you don't, no big deal. A uh, quick casting note: uh, Luke Goss, who played the villain Nomak in Blade Two, um, will be returning to the world of Guillermo del Toro for another second film with him. Uh, he will be playing Prince Nuada, the villain in Hellboy Two: The Golden Army. So he seems to be uh, Guillermo del Toro's good luck charm for doing uh, number two of films. Let's hope so. I thought I figured overall uh, Doug Jones was Guillermo del Toro's good luck charm, though. So, and some premiere dates for series coming up on the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, some things that we talked about. Um, we'd actually been asked about Doctor Who at the Starfest convention a couple weeks ago, mostly because people know that that uh, Jefferson usually knows about those things, being the huge British sci-fi fan that he is. Um, Doctor Who, Doctor Who will be out on July sixth. Uh, Doctor Who season three will premiere on Sci-Fi on July sixth. The new Flash Gordon series that we've been talking about uh, will be starting on August 10th, and the new season of Who Wants to Be a Superhero uh, will begin on July 25th. That's the second season of the reality series with uh, Stan the Man Lee. And uh, the Doctor Who spinoff, Torchwood, uh, which we are also asked about at Starfest, um, will not be on Sci-Fi Channel, but it, it will air on BBC America as part of their Supernatural Saturday. Um, they have not announced a date on that, just that it will premiere later this year. Uh, unfortunately, I don't get BBC America, so I won't be able to watch that. Yeah, um, I, I don't either, but I've already seen them all. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting show. Imagine X-Files with well, a lot more sex and swearing, and that's pretty much what Torchwood is. It's, uh, I'll be interested. Oh, nice. To... Now I want to see it. <laughs> well, I'll be interested to see how much of it they're, they're re- required to, to trim for uh, – for uh, an American viewing because it was, it was a pretty strong series. It was shown uh, the, on the BBC in England after, I think after nine o'clock, after a certain hour, their, their censorship restrictions really relax a lot, a lot more than they do here in the States. So there, I mean, there's a lot of swearing, a lot of uh, not, not totally explicit sex, but a lot of very, very strongly implied sex in the show. And I'll just, uh, I'll wonder how much of that they'll be able to show over here. Maybe all of it. I don't know. And I did want to give a shout-out to the person who sent me that story um, to let me know about that. It was Time Lord from Jonja.net, J-O-N-J-A.net. He actually was a reporter sent out from that news site. Uh, Jonja.net is actually a sci-fi news site on the web, and they sent a reporter out to the Starfest convention, and he came and went into our room at Superhero Cinema many times, interviewed me quite a few times, uh, watched our podcast that we recorded there, and uh, has followed up with us. He actually uh, wrote it up in a very nice story on that website. So if anyone is from JonJon.net, if you found out about us from that website, thanks for coming over. And uh, our fans should check out that site for some of your sci-fi news. Well, that's it for our news this week, but keep checking it out at SuperheroCinema.com every day. Now let's get on the rumor treadmill, where stories hop on and off pretty quick. Just a couple of quick rumors this week. Uh, first is that there's been a lot of Iron Man stuff hitting the web. Um, not This is separate from the official information about casting and the official pictures that have been released. Um, at least one website did have a uh, camera footage, some video footage of from the set. It was taken from uh, about a block away through a fence with a telephoto lens uh, zooming in and showing a stuntman walking around in the Iron Man armor. Uh, this is supposedly real, but uh, the reason it's in the rumor section is there's no confer- confirmation that that footage is real. It, it could have been something that someone doctored up, um, but I did watch it, and, and it was pretty interesting watching someone walk around in the suit, um, basically lie down and, and uh, do some kind of leg lifts and, and just kind of showing that, that they could move around in the suit. Um, kind they, of an Iron Man yoga there. Right. Um, there also has been uh, at least one picture out there that – that shows what looks to be uh, Iron Man in the Iron Man suit that we've seen pictures of on the set uh, about to fight uh, someone who looks like they are in the Iron Monger suit from the comics. 
Now, those who know the comics know that the character that Jeff Bridges is playing, Obadiah Stane, uh, is, a, is a rival industrialist to Tony Stark, who eventually in his storyline creates his own rival suit of armor that was basically a big, black, hulking suit of armor uh, called the Ironmonger. And uh, that's what the picks look like. Now, again, these these may not be real. This, this could be something that the fan made up in Photoshop, uh, knowing... Knowing the fact that uh, we would watch, look at that and know that it would make sense because of the Obadiah Stane character being in there. So we'll have to just wait and see uh, if, if any of these things turn out to be real or just uh, internet stuff. So what's our percentage here as far as uh, our rumors becoming true or false? Any idea? Uh, it depends on what it is. For Iron Man? I, 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 wa- I looked at both things. I, I'm, I'm not convinced by either until I see more. Um, that Neither of them kind of... Yeah, the, the walking around footage, it seemed like it, it would be a stretch for someone to have actually invented that because it, it lasted for several minutes. Um, and it looked like what it looked like, which is you know someone using a video camera from, from very far away to, to shoot into the set. But um, you would think they'd be a little bit more careful than that. Uh, the Ironmonger pick would be a very big spoiler if, if it's real. And, and of the two things, that's the one that to me kind of looked a little bit more Photoshop-esque. Um, the second story is a potential casting uh, information. Uh, Josh Holloway, who plays Sawyer on Lost, um, was actually quoted as him saying that he and his people had been contacted about the possibility of him playing Gambit in a future X-Men film. He would certainly look and sound the part. It would actually technically be his second time appearing as a comic book character. There's a series that Marvel publishes called uh, New Universal, which is a redone version of their their new universe line of comics from the 80s and the artist on it uses a lot of photo reference for the characters and he actually uses photos of josh holloway to draw one of the characters Starbrand, from so holloway's actually been in a comic book before hmm. yeah does he know that yeah he may not be aware of that <laughs> maybe he's listening maybe the artist of that comic is about to get in a lot of trouble we'll uh I actually, I personally don't don't like the technique. I find it distracting when comic artists do that. There's a small sort of movement in comic art where they they're trying for this photorealistic look, and they use photos of of celebrities as models for the characters. And I I usually don't and I don't like it at all. I find it distracting. The only thing that I find kind of dubious about the story is that uh, the casting of it would make sense, but I don't know that an X Men four is far enough along that they would be talking to actors at this point. No, it sounds to me like somebody said. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if? That seems like that's how a lot of these rumors start. And isn't doesn't Gambit have a Cajun accent? Well, that's, uh, that's called this accent. is this is how oh, okay. we're talking about wow. too. One one Southern accent's as good as another. There you go. And they could always just change it. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. So if you haven't already, click on the subscribe link on our website to subscribe to the podcast or find us on iTunes by searching for Superhero Cinema. If you are subscribed on iTunes and you like the show, uh, help us promote it by writing a review of the show. It helps the show grow by getting us on the front page of iTunes. If you have any news stories, suggestions for what you want us to talk about, or any comments on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at superherocinema.com. You can also leave us voicemail on Skype. Our Skype name is Superhero Cinema. Thank you again, Jefferson and Jonathan. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, Michael. And thank you again to our listeners for joining us. We hope you keep showing up for Superhero Cinema. We're saving the world one fan at a time.